series, um, Treasure Principles. Uh, it's a, a book by Randy Alcorn. Um, how many of you guys have actually gone and, and like, got the book? Anyone reading the book? Thanks, thanks, OG. <laughs> For a moment there, I was like, what? Um, yeah, so it's, so it's a book uh, Randy Alcorn wrote. It's, uh, he, called, he titles it Treasure Principle. It's a phenomenal book. So everything that we've covered is in that book. And so I would really encourage you guys to go and read it. I don't think it's more than 100 pages. Um, but it's something that you can keep going back to again and again and again. Uh, because what is in there is rich. Uh, he kind of looks at the scriptures and says, well, then how are we to handle all the treasures that we've been given? If God has given us everything, how are we to handle those treasures? And so we've been looking at it these last uh, three weeks, if you count this one, uh, and we've divided it up into six keys. And so we're saying, uh, if you apply these six keys in your life, they will be a game changer. I'd almost go as far as to say it'll be a financial game changer. If you just apply these six keys, if you trust God with these six keys that are rooted in Scripture, man, it'll change how you understand your possessions, your money, your influence, everything. And so when we looked at the the first key was that God owns everything. The first key was God owns everything. We are just his managers. We're just stewards. And so that led us to the second one, that our hearts will follow God's money. We call it God's money because God owns everything. He owns every single rand and cent in your bank account or the lack of it. He owns it all. And so our hearts will just follow where God's money goes. If you want to know what you treasure, just look at your financial bank statements. Last week, we looked at another two keys. The first one being heaven, not earth, is our home. Heaven and not earth is our home. That we are to to live with an eternal perspective. That was our fourth key. That we're to live for the line and not the dot. If heaven is our home, then we shouldn't invest here as if this is our final destination. That we're to live for the line. We're to live for eternity with an eternal perspective. Yes, this here and now is incredibly important. But it fades and it passes away. And so how do we live lives where we're investing for eternity? And so if this is the last installment, the last sermon in the series, at some point, if you're sitting here and you're going, you know what, I believe the first four keys. I'm struggling a little bit with one or two of them, but I, but I believe them. I see where you get them in the scriptures. I, I, I trust in Jesus. And so if I trust in Jesus, I must apply these keys in my life. If you're sitting here and going, okay, listen, I get it and it makes sense. Then at some point we have to ask the question, so how much does God really want? At some point, you've got to be confronted with that. You, you're sitting here, I know many of you are going, I know he was going to get there. I know he was going to get there. At some point, we have to discuss this. So how much does God really want? If he owns everything and I'm just a manager, I should be living for the line and not for the dot. Heaven is my home, not here. Okay, great, I get it, I believe it. So how much does God really want? Let's keep it real. And so this morning, I'm going to answer that. And I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to answer you and then I'm not going to answer you. It's, it's going to be one of those mornings. It's going to be one of those mornings. So how much does God really want? This is probably the most intense of the three. It's going to feel like I'm going to uh, 
walk into the middle and kind of put a grenade on the ground and pull the pin and just kind of watch what the Holy Spirit does. It's one of those mornings. It's, it's going to get real. It's going to get uncomfortable. But I'm going to stay in the Scriptures. I'm going to stay in the Scriptures. And maybe one or two times I may pull away. If I, if I stand here, this is what I believe. And I'll say it. I'll be like, this is what Oni believes. These are my convictions. But when I stand here, I want you to know that I'm getting this from the Word of God. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. And so I'm going I'm to pray again that, that God would meet us where we are and that we, we desperately need Him. We desperately need Him. I desperately need Him. And so join me as we pray as we wrap up the series. Father, we, we need You. I need you. A lot of what's going to be said this morning will make many of us uncomfortable. It made me incredibly uncomfortable in preparing it. It, re- it revealed a lot of sin in my own life. A lot of places where I say I believe you when I actually don't. And so, Father, we, we ask that your light would shine in the areas of darkness in our lives. But at the same time, that, that your grace would cover us and that we would feel your love. We would experience your forgiveness. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We, I think it's safe to say we live in a culture that says uh, the more you have, the happier you'll be. Right? The more you have, the happier you'll be. I believe this is true for uh, us middle-class South Africans, that more is better. More is better. More money more relationships, more success, more muscles. We're sold this time and time again. You walk into a bookstore and you'll see magazines appealing to you to say, listen, if you have more, you will be happier. And so I believe as a church, we must put this to the test. We must Put this to the test. We must ask and answer. Does more stuff equal more joy? I went and looked at some people who have had a lot. They have a lot. Some have died already. Some are still living today. Just to hear what they say about this. John D. Rockefeller. Some of you might know this name. He was an oil tycoon in the early 1900s. Believed to be one of the richest men to have ever lived. Statisticians? How do you say that? There we go. And economists say that um, if, if you were to evaluate how much he had back then with kind of the currency and the way we live today, he'd still be considered one of the richest men to have ever lived. And so in an interview, when a reporter asked him how much money is enough, he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. This is a man who has everything. He has everything, but yet feels like "Mm, it's not enough. Communicating that I'm, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. Bob Marley, and I don't have to tell you who Bob Marley is. This is what he says. Money is numbers, and numbers never end. If it takes money to be happy, your search for happiness will never end. Bob Marley. This is a, a man where, listen, I know we're, we're, we're everywhere with regards to music. 
But I, if I could just come and say, Bob Marley, everyone knows Bob Marley. President Barack Obama, this is what he says, focusing your life solely on making a buck, making money, shows a poverty of ambition. It asks too little of yourself, and it will leave you unfulfilled. This is a man considered to be one of the most powerful men in the world. This is what he says. More does not equal more joy, more happiness. Having more stuff does not equal that. But, but here's one more, and this one, kinda, this one blows me out the water. This is, uh, before the quote goes up, let me uh, tell you who Tom Brady is. Um, I'm a bit of a, an NFL uh, fan. I watch a little bit of American football every now and then. And so Tom Brady is the quarterback for the New England Patriots. He's won three Super Bowl championships, so three championships, and, and he won all of this before the age of 30. <sighs> to be continued. He was named Super Bowl MVP twice. People Magazine rated him as uh, the 50 most beautiful people in the, like, in the world. <laughs> Tom Brady's net worth is $180 million with an annual salary of $26.5 million. This guy makes more money than I'll ever make in my entire lifetime in one year. It's safe to say he has it all. Tom Brady has it all. And so in an interview, this is what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. This is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up all to be. Let me summarize it. Tom Brady's saying, listen, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this. Tom Brady is not a Christian. He's not a Christian has everything. And he sits there and he's like, surely there's got to be more to life. And so if more money and stuff doesn't equal more joy and happiness, then what, what does? What is the other option? Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, says this, the less I spend on myself and the more I have to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. What Hudson Taylor is saying is, it's not about the accumulation of stuff, but rather it's giving away. The giving away of all that I have, that's where I find joy. I believe Hudson Taylor makes the very same declaration that the Bible makes. That the more generous you are with your time and your talents and your treasures, the more joyful you will be. But if I was to be honest, my heart pushes back against this. My heart pushes back against this. In fact, I am incredibly stingy. If I was to be honest, I am incredibly stingy. I don't want to be generous. I want to accumulate, believing that that will give me joy. When the Bible says the complete opposite, it says that it's when you give away that you find joy. So what keeps us 
from seeing the joy in generosity, right? Because we don't think that. We don't think that. We don't think it's the giving away of things. That's where we find our joy. So what keeps us from seeing the joy in generosity? The answer is simple. It's we love money. We love money. Uh, Let me take a step further. We love the things that money will get us. Right? So I know some of you might sit here and go, well, I actually don't love money. Yeah, but you love the things that money will get you. The products that money will get you. The experiences. The, the fact that we get to travel and see the world. We love that. That's what keeps us from seeing the joy in generosity. We have a materialism problem. We have a materialism problem. Materialism, a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than God. That's our problem. James says it. He says the the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 24 that no man can serve both God and money. We cannot serve God and money. No matter how you want to slice this cake, you can't. Because God is not a part-time lover. He's not. God is not a a part-time lover. You can't go, well, I have half of you and, and then half of money. That's not how it works. God wants all of you. And guess what? Money wants the same. It'll want all of you. And so Jesus says you cannot. You cannot serve both God and money. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to worship money. So if the pursuit of the accumulation of things or the pursuit of money because of all that it can give us does not lead to a joyous life, then what's the answer? Maybe a better way to put it is... What is the defense to materialism? If our problem is, is materialism, then what is our defense to it? How do I guard my heart against it? This brings us to the fifth key. You want to know the defense to materialism? Give generously. Give generously. See, every time you give generously to the things of the Lord, you are establishing His Lordship over you. We covered this last week. When you say, I am about my father's business, what you're saying is that I trust him wholeheartedly. That includes my money. Giving says that God is Lord, not the stuff that I have. Giving puts things into their rightful place. Giving reorients my life, that I live for God and not for stuff. But I want to anchor us in Scripture, right? I want to show you through God's word that that, that giving is incredibly powerful. It's an incredibly powerful defense to materialism. So we're going to spend this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me give a little bit of context to what's going on. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. It's kind of like he's slapping them and kissing them at the same time. It's rebuke and encouragement. He's saying, listen, church, you guys ought to be giving. 
The church in Jerusalem is in need. That's where the church started, right? Remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. That's where it began. And so the gospel has spread at this point. Churches are, have been planted. But now the church in Jerusalem is struggling. The saints, the brothers and sisters are struggling a little bit. And so Paul says, listen, you guys ought to be giving. You guys need to be helping your brothers and sisters. That's the context. But I'll start reading from verse 1, and we'll just kind of walk through this passage to show you that an incredible defense to materialism is to give generously. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, the region Macedonia with Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. That's where we find the book of Philippians, Thessalonians. And then in Acts chapter 17, we hear of the Bereans. All right? So they made up this region called Macedonia. Verse 2, for in severe test of affliction. So they were going through some trials because of their faith, because they put their trust in Jesus. They were going through some issues, some persecution. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, abundance in joy, or of joy, and their extreme poverty, these two couldn't be on opposite ends of the room, like more opposite ends of, of the room. In fact, in hearing these, you're like, they, they shouldn't go together. How can one be, have abundance of joy and then be in extreme poverty? That doesn't make sense. Sounds like a paradox. But that was their situation. Because of the, the persecution that they were experiencing, they were going through extreme poverty. But you were told that they had, there was this abundance of joy. And, and both of these overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. See, we're not like that. Because when, when we feel like we're in extreme poverty, that's when we go, you know what, I actually can't give. Be it of my time, my talents, or my treasures. I just, I can't give. I'm going through this situation, so I can't give. It's completely different for them. One might say it's countercultural. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. It feels like the story just gets crazier and crazier. So not only did they give what they had, but they were like, no, listen, we're going to give over and above what we can. How does one do that? I'm pretty sure they're sitting around the table going, you know what, I know it's tough. I know it's tough. But you know what? Maybe instead of having meat for five days, let's have meat for three days. And then let's take that money and then let's give. Let's give because we have eternity in mind. That the gospel must continue. It must spread. That we are about our Father's business. And so they're not sitting there going, no, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until things get good. I'm going to wait until the economy gets really, really good. And then I'll give. Let's do that. It's like, no, 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 no. We're going to give over and above what we have. We're going we're to have to make some sacrifices so that we might give. And it says here it was of their own accord. I feel like I have to say something here. They weren't convinced. They weren't persuaded. They weren't 
lied to. They weren't tricked. I know many of us, we've been hurt by churches where it feels like, listen, they were just, they were asking for something and it just didn't sound right. I feel like I was being tricked into giving. It's like another building fund. Like, how many are we going to have? Not the buildings are bad, but, but I know, I know the stories. But Paul says here, no, it was of their own accord. See, when I read that, when I, when I read this, I land on this statement, and I, and I said it to my wife earlier this week in preparation, and she was like, oh, that, that's, that's harsh, but, but at the same time, it's true. You, you can't not read the scriptures and see it. And here it is, that if, if, you're, if you are giving in a gospel-centered way, Right, like the Macedonians, that if you are giving in a gospel-centered way, then it should hurt. If it doesn't, then you're not doing it right. I, when I read that, I, like, if you believe that you, your giving is saturated and centered in the gospel, and it doesn't hurt, then you're not doing it right. Let, let me explain. My wife and I, we, we give, um, and so we, every now and then we'll pause for a moment, and then we'll look at what we're giving, and we'll go, oh, imagine if we could keep that. What? Yeah. That's more Tribeca ribs, you're right. Like, I- imagine if we could keep that, what we could do with it. And some of it is legit. It'll be like, imagine like the, some of the debts that we could pay, how we could invest It hurts. It hurts to give. It hurts to generously give. And not just of money. I know there are lots of people that show up here 7.30 every Sunday. Especially on those mornings. You know when you wake up and and all you hear outside is that. You think to yourself, ah, not today. Jesus, not today. But they show up here at 7.30 ready to serve, giving up of their time. It hurts. It hurts. But hear this, that, that, that pain that you feel, it's temporary in light of eternity. The joy, the joy that awaits you in light of eternity. Man, you think to yourself, That's, I'll do it again and again and again. When we baptized five people, all of a sudden, that 7.30 was like, yeah, whatever, I'll do it again and again. If you're, if you're saying we get to do that, we get to do that, I'll show up here at 7. I'll show up here at 7. If we get to, like, that's the joy of giving. But let's keep reading. Paul continues to write in verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So, so Paul didn't have to ask them. He didn't have to go, come up and go, hey, guys, um, listen, we need to give because things are... No. They see Paul come. They ran to him and said, Paul, listen, how can we give? I'm pretty sure Paul was like, you know what? I'm not even going to ask them because I know the situation. Right? That's what we do. I know things are tough. So we're not even going to ask. We're not even going to mention it. We're not going to talk about money because I know it's tough. 
economy isn't doing well. People are struggling to get jobs. You know what? Let's, let's just let's not, let's say anything. And Paul says, no, listen, they were begging me. They were asking, how can we give? How can we be a part of what God is doing? Because we have been blessed by the work that's happened in Jerusalem. The brothers and sisters who have faithfully served God, we have been blessed by them. How can we help? I know we don't have much. We don't have much, but how can we be a part of what God is doing? Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's how they're able to do this. If you're sitting there and going, how on earth are people who are in extreme poverty able to give not only what they have, but over and above? It's because they're rooted in God. So what are the implications for the Corinthians and for us? Paul is very clear on this. In verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul encourages Titus to try to bring the Corinthians to maturity in this area of giving. See, the Corinthians were a gifted group of individuals like us, right? Like us. They were a a gifted group of individuals. Many had faith or speech or knowledge, love. But Paul says, you guys are not excelling in the act of grace. And this act of grace is, is in giving. He says, in the same way that you excel in all these other things, I want you guys to excel in giving. Despite all their good qualities, they were incomplete. And Paul wanted them to grow. And so this brings us to the major implication. And so hear this, and I think it's up on the screen. There's no way to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. If you want to grow in maturity, you, you can't put this to the side. It's like, you know what, it's, it's about how much I know in the Bible. It's about how much I pray. It's about how much I share my faith. No, those things are incredibly important, but so is giving of your time, of your talents, and of your treasures. Money is so entwined with one's soul. Some say that the average person spends about 50% of his or her time thinking about money. This is true. How to get it, how to spend it. We do, guys. And so whether the stats are correct or not, this is true. And it is also true that our handling of money defines our affections. The things we truly treasure, how tightly we are bound to the world, and so on. But then Paul points us to the ultimate example. He points us to the ultimate example of giving, generously giving. In verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You want to see what it looks like to give generously? Look to Jesus. Jesus was and is the great example and motivation for giving. See, Paul doesn't use an Old Testament command. I know many of you were waiting for that one. Malachi, right? Everyone's kind of like, when's he going to get to it? When's he? Paul doesn't use it. He doesn't use a, a, a teaching by Jesus, and Jesus spoke about money. He spoke a lot about money, but he doesn't use that. He reaches for the highest example, the ultimate motivation, Jesus Christ himself. Though Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things, incredible wealth, humbles himself. Philippians uses the words, he emptied himself. He wasn't sitting going, well, how much am I going to give? 10%, 20%, like how much? No, no, no. Christ emptied himself. came to dwell among us, died for us. And in his poverty, we become rich. Rich in love, rich in grace, rich in mercy. See, giving is a matter of grace. Christ gave himself. We receive his grace and then we give ourselves to him and to others. This response to grace includes giving what we have. That is how the Macedonians gave out of their poverty with great kindness and generosity because their eyes were fixed on Christ. And this is how we are to give. This is how we are to give. And it's not out of our poverty. As middle-class South Africans, and I know I'm not speaking to everyone in the room, we are not giving out of poverty. If we compare ourselves to the rest of this country, it is not out of poverty. We too are to fix our eyes on Christ and we are to give in the same way. Give generously. But let me switch lanes real quick. All right? Let me, let me switch lanes. By asking this question, what, what do we do when we get more money? What, what happens to our lives? When, when we get that promotion, when, when we change jobs, when we get that position, what happens to our lives when we get more money? It's okay, you can talk back. What happens? The standard of our living goes up. Whether it's we save more, we spend more, the standard of our living goes up. See, I, I've never met a person, I've never met a person who goes, I just got a promotion. That means I get to give away more. I, I've, I've, and, and I'm not that guy. I'll be the first person to say it. I'm not that guy. When, when I get a promotion or when I get more money, the standard of my life goes up. I want to get a better car, a bigger house, nicer clothes. McDonald's is not good enough for me anymore. <laughs> I go to places where you, where you need to make a reservation. 
standard of living goes up. The great cultural theological poet, Notorious B.I.G., he says, the more money we have, the more problems we get. So then why does God give us more? If you're sitting here and you're going, I know where he's going with this, right? Because we raise our standard of living and we shouldn't because we're called to give generously. Then, then why does God give us more? Because it's his money. It's his time. It's his talents. It's his treasures. Then why does he give us more? It's so that we might give more. The righteous scatters his seed so that he might reflect the heart of God. This leads me to key number six. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And can I, can I just say this? You can't give yourself into poverty. I know you might be sitting here going, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find a defense for everything that he says. So you say, I just need to just give and give and give and give. Then I'm going to be poor. No, you, you can't. I've never heard of anybody who gave themselves into poverty. They gave so much. They were so generous. That it's now it's like, well, I'm in poverty now. No, no, no. I've, I've heard of the opposite. I've heard of people who've spent foolishly. I've heard of that. I've heard of people who've lived beyond their means and ended up in poverty. But to generously give in a way that is saturated in the gospel? Never heard of it. See, for many of us, God will prosper us. You guys are intelligent people. Doors will open. Promotions are coming. God will prosper you, not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. And so when, when I say things like this, this usually brings up the question, okay, 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 so how much then should I give? How much should I give? I want to read out of one of Tim Keller's books titled Counterfeit God. If you haven't read it, it's a must. It's a must. Brilliant, brilliant book. And this is what he says on this whole issue of, well, then how much should I give? He starts by telling the story of Zacchaeus, or commenting on it. Zacchaeus wanted to follow Jesus, and immediately he realized that if he was to do that, money was an issue. So Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and back then, as a, if you were a Jew and a tax collector, it's just not good, because that meant you were stealing from your own people to give to the Romans. So no one liked you? That was Zacchaeus, incredibly wealthy. And so he realized if he was to follow Jesus, money was going to be an issue. So he made two remarkable promises. He promised to give away 50% of his income to the poor. This was far beyond the 10% that Mosaic law required. Today, to give away even 10% of our income to charity seems an enormous sum though wealthy people could do much more and still live comfortably. Zacchaeus knew that when he made this offer, his heart had been affected. Since he knew salvation was not through the law, he wanted to go beyond it. 
Tim Keller says this, there have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and asked about tithing, giving away a tenth of their annual income. They notice that in the Old Testament, there are many clear commands that believers should give away 10%. But in the New Testament, specific quantitative requirements for giving are less prominent, right? And I hear this over and over again. It's like, no, I know in the Old Testament 10%, but like, you know, it's about our hearts. So what should I give? New Testament doesn't really say much. They often asked me, you don't think that now in the New Testament, believers are absolutely required to give away 10%, do you? I shake my head, no. And they give a sigh of relief. But then I quickly add, I'll tell you why you don't see the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. Think about it. Have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Usually, there's an uncomfortable silence. Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us or did he give it all? Tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. Did did y'all catch that? What Tim Keller says is like, listen, okay, so in, in the Old Testament, they were looking towards Jesus. They were longing for this Savior. That's why they had to sacrifice goats and lambs. It was in hope of the Savior to come. We, on the other side, we look back. We have more of a revelation than they did. And so should we be comfortable to give less than they did? Or should we go, my goodness, we have received so much more. That 10%, we've received so much more. So let's go back to the story of Zacchaeus. In response to these promises, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Notice he didn't say, if you live like this, salvation will come to the house. No, it has come. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to salvation, offered as a free gift. That was the reason for Zacchaeus' new heart and life. If salvation had been something earned through obedience to the moral code, then Zacchaeus' question would have been, how, must, how much must I give? However, these promises were a response to a lavish and generous grace. So his question was, how much can I give? But let's go back to the text. Like I said, I want us to be rooted in Scripture. I just don't want, to, I just don't want us to, to follow Tim Keller. I want us to follow the Scriptures. And so let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll read from verse 10. In hope of answering this question, so how much must I give? And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. So now finish, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness, if, for if, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So how much must I give 
must give proportionately. If we're to believe verse 12, we're to give proportionately. Paul notes there the readiness as something positive because such readiness is an indication of the Corinthians' hearts being willing to be generous. There's a, a, a story that gets told in the pastor circles, right? So, so even pastors have like these little groups and gangs and so forth, and, and they say stuff in these things. And so there's a story um, that I heard that during a worship service in Santon, I don't know if this is true or not, during a worship service in Santon, it's reported that one of the, the members of the congregation accidentally put in a 200 note in the offering basket instead of a 20 rand note. Shocked in the realization of what he had done, he quickly asked for it back, right? But the the usher answered, in once, in forever. (laughs) Oh well, groaned the giver, I'll get credit for it in heaven. No, said the usher, you'll get credit for your 20 rand only. Whether that's true or not, how right that usher was, because God's focus is on the heart. And God desires willing hearts that, are, that eagerly give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. We're to give proportionately to what we have. We're not to look over the fence and go, oh, I wonder what my neighbor's giving. You give according to what you have. Which means both the rich and the poor can give great gifts to God when they give according to what they have because it's from the heart. Mark 12, Jesus sitting with his disciples, watching as people go in and out of the synagogue, as they give, as they tithe, notices a a poor widow who comes and gives two small copper coins which make a penny. He sits there and he's like, "Mm, this could be a teaching moment looks to his disciples and he says, listen, I want you to know that that poor widow has given more, has given more than all these other wealthy people who give out of their abundance. She's given more. Because for many of us, this is what we do when we, when we think about giving, as we, we go to our budget, we spend and we invest and we save and then we go, okay, so how much is left? I'll give that. We give out of our abundance. Where Jesus says, no, 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 listen. If you truly want to give from the heart, you start there first. You trust God and you start there first. Proportionate, right? Proportionate, but you give from the heart. But this leads me to my second point in helping us understand well, how much are we to give? And the second point is, is not so much a how much, but it's, it's a way how, we're to, how, ought, how we should give. Let me say it that way. How we should give. Verse 13 and 14 tell us that we're to give mutually. Not only proportionately, but we're to give mutually. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that As a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. See, it is doubtful that Paul is referring to 
an exact amount. See what Paul is saying, it's not about the exact amount. It's, it's the fact that you guys get to mutually give to one another so that nobody is in need. See, what he was calling them out on was saying, guys, we need to give to the church in Jerusalem. How do you think the gospel got here? It's faithful men and women in Jerusalem who said, you know what, I want to be about my father's business. This gospel needs to spread. That's how it got here. And so we are, we've benefited from the gospel, and so we ought to give to them because they're in need. That's why I love Acts 29. I love Acts 29. There are Acts 29 churches that give to us, that allow us to do what we do, allow us to purchase the equipment that we have, to pay rent. My hope is that we would then begin to give to others. That as we looks to plant in Mamelodi, that we would give to that. It's this mutual giving of God's people. So that nobody is in need. See, Paul wraps he wraps it up with these words found in verse 15. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul quotes from Exodus 16, verse 18. Paul wants to hammer down the effect of such giving, this mutual giving. He, he takes us to when the Israelites were in the desert and God was providing for them manna from the heavens, bread from the heavens. And he says, listen, guys, you should go and gather, but then share with one another so that nobody is in need. And so obviously there were, there were the strong individuals who would gather lots. And there was the, the weaker ones who didn't gather a lot. But then they shared it together so that nobody was in need. Imagine if the church was like that. And I'm not talking small church. I'm, to, see, I'm talking big C church. If all the churches gathered together and said, listen, we're about the spreading of the gospel. How can we make sure that nobody is in need? Those who have much, giving to those who don't. But don't be fooled. We will learn so much from those who don't have a lot materially. I've learned so much from those who don't have. When we talk about the gospel, we, we have lots to learn from those who are poor. How to trust God. How not to look at our circumstances and be like, I have nowhere to go. Paul leaves the amount of the gift up to the Corinthians because he's convinced that the quantity of their giving will be matched with the quality of their changed hearts. You're sitting here trying to figure out how much should I give? Well, it depends. How do you see the gospel? How do you understand the gospel? How big is the gospel in your life? As we wrap up this series, guys, I want to challenge you to give. I want to challenge you to give. She's like so in control. And here's the thing. I want, 
I want to challenge you to give strategically. I want you to plan. I want you to go and sit down and go, listen, man, this is how much I make. It's not about just the 10%. I told you I'm I'm going to put the Bible here and I'm going to stand here. This is me, right? It's not, you won't find it. What I'm about to say, you will not find here. This is me. This is what I believe. I believe a maturing Christian, a maturing Christian will give more than 10%. A maturing Christian will give more. And I'm saying this to myself. When I was looking at this passage and studying it, I was going, gosh. Like I, the grace of God has been given. Jesus emptied himself. And I'm fixed on this 10%. I'm constantly going 10%. No. How can I generously give? A maturing Christian will give more than 10%. That 10% is just the minimum. It's it's where we start the conversation. But I'll come back to the scriptures. So I want to challenge you to give. Strategically, I want you to plan. I want you to go sit and plan. How, how How can I give away of my time and my talents and my treasures? But then I also want to challenge you to give spontaneously. I want to challenge you to give spontaneously. That as you hear of needs to go, you know what, I have, I've, I've given, I've given up what I planned and what I want, want to be strategic about, but, but here's an opportunity to give. It's spontaneous. It's not planned. I don't have it in the budget, but I'm going to trust God because why? I want to be about my father's business. I want to see the kingdom of God expand. And so that means it's not just giving to Rooted. I said this last week and I'll say it again. Yes, I want you to give to Rooted. Because I hear it time and time again. I'm so thankful for this church. What a blessing this church has been to me. And so I want us to be able to bless others. I want us to grow. I want us to be able to do things where we can reach more people with the gospel. So give to Rooted. But then give to other things as well. Give to missionaries. Give to ministries. Give, give spontaneously. Because I believe this, that giving, giving will free you. It will nurture joy and it will build your faith in God. Giving will free you. It will nurture joy and it will build your faith in God. See, it will free you because it will break you It will break the chains that hold you captive to your possessions. You'll be able to go, you know what, I'm not about my things. I'm not about my investment account. I'm not about my savings. I'm not about my car. I'm not about my house. I'm about God. And so when the economy crashes, you go, well, it's okay. We'll figure it out. Because my identity is not in those things. Giving will nurture joy, the joy of knowing that you are investing in eternity. That you're part of God's plan, investing in eternity. And then it'll build your faith in God, the God that we love and serve. Because when you give generously, when you give sacrificially, it forces you to trust in God. It forces you to trust in God. So giving will free you. It'll nurture joy and it'll build your faith in Him. As I land the plane with these simple applications, 
just three applications. And, and depending on where you are on this, you'll figure out which one hits you. The first one is, is I know some of us are drowning financially. I know that. Some of us are drowning financially. Times are hard. And, and there's two reasons you could be drowning financially. One is because we live in a broken world, I know that you're being taken advantage of. Meaning that I know some of you guys probably aren't getting paid what you should be, be being paid. I know that. I know that that's a reality. I know that that's a reality. And so financially, it's just tough. But the other reason is that many of us are living beyond our means. We're living beyond our means. We're buying things we shouldn't be. We're spending on things we shouldn't be. And so we're struggling financially. For both those individuals, I want to say to you, don't suffer in silence. Don't suffer in isolation. That we are a community. Come and speak to someone. Come and speak to me. Say, listen, I just want to get out of this. Because you shouldn't be. If you're a child of God, you shouldn't be drowning in your finances. That we are a community and we're here for each other. Don't suffer in silence or isolation. For some of us, we're, we're financially okay, right? We're financially okay. But maybe this series has made you realize that you're actually worshiping your money. That's why you're financially okay. Things are just all right. It's good. It's, I'm, I'm okay. But maybe you're not trusting God for more. The story of the talents. Maybe you're that one guy who's buried that one talent. Where everyone else has gone to, to try and make more of all that God has given them. You're like, you know what, I'm just going to bury it. That way I'll be safe. I'll be secure. I'll be all right. Look at my plans. Look at my portfolio. It's great. Not realizing that maybe you're trusting in money instead of trusting in God. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to give generously. Give a little bit more. Get to that place where it hurts a little bit. It's temporary. Remember, in light of eternity, it's temporary, but it hurts a little bit. Where you go, man, I don't know. I don't know if we should be giving, but, but we're giving to the planting of churches. We're giving to the feeding of orphans. We're giving to the developing of people. Give with an eternal perspective. And then, for some of us, which I think is most of us, God has blessed us abundantly. Don't hoard that blessing. Don't hold on to it. Don't hide it under the bed. Don't keep it to yourself. But rather, seek to leave a legacy of abundant generosity. I want to be remembered as that. I want to be remembered as someone who gave generously for the things of God, someone who is about my father's business. Guys, I want us as a church, I want us as a church to give in such a way that the gates of hell shudder because of the advancing of God's kingdom through us. That's how I want us to be remembered. Where the gates of hell are going, you know, what on earth is going on there? What's up with those people of God? They are giving not only of their time and their talents and their treasures, they, they are giving for the advancing of God's kingdom. 
Because I think right now, gates of hell are just going, oh, it's cool. We're right. We got this, guys. Because look how they hoard their blessings. Look how they think about themselves. Look how they find their identity in things. God's people give joyfully according to what they have. God's people, that's us, that's you and me, God's people, we give joyfully according to what we have. And, and what do we have? We have the gospel. We have the good news of the gospel. That's what we have. And so I, I, these will be my final words. As we wrap up this series, if God's people give joyfully according to what they have, which is the gospel, then let us all be God's people. Can we be God's people? Rooted fellowship, can we be God's people? If, they, if God's people give joyfully, they give generously because of what we have, and that is the good news of the gospel, we have Jesus Christ my encouragement is can we be God's people to a broken world, to a world that is in desperate need of Jesus? Can we be God's people? Let's pray. And so, Father, as we, as we wrap up this series and as, as we've touched on, on many things, as we've looked at the six different keys, Father, I ask that you would examine our hearts individually and then corporately as well. That you would examine our hearts. That we would see the gospel for what it is. That God, you sent your son to come and die for us. That you you reached out to us when we didn't want you. And that in Christ we have life and life to the full. And so I, I hope that we would reflect that in everything. Not only in the way we read the scriptures, not, not only in the way we pray or when we gather during the week in our city groups, when we do community and life together, but also in the way that we give. And not just of our money, but of our time and our talents, the gifts that you have given us. Would you examine our hearts? And so even as we sing this last song, Father God, I'm hoping that we we would not get caught up in the how much and is it 10% or is it this or is it that, but rather that we would see you for who you are, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we see you for who you are, that it would cause our hearts to respond in such a beautiful way that the world would look at us and know that we live for something greater. And so, Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in your beautiful name. Amen.